So this morning, we're in Romans chapter 8, and beginning from verse 31, and reading to verse 39. So Romans chapter 8, in verse 31, and reading to verse 39. And as we, we're coming somewhat to an end of, a, of an extended section that has be, begun back in chapter 3 and verse 21, and so this is somewhat of a summary of it. And... Um, as, I, as I, we got into Roman chapter 8, I mentioned to you that Roman chapter 8 is sometimes called the mountaintop of, of the Bible. Uh, you, you, you climb up here to Roman chapter 8 and just kind of gives you this panoramic view of all of the rest of Scripture, you know, just seeing so much of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the way that it's, it's explained. And so... If Roman chapter 8 is kind of reaching that pinnacle, I, I think this section here that we're going to look at puts us even a little bit higher. You know, for us just to see uh, the grandeur and the glory of the gospel and what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we look at this text, one of the things I want you to keep in mind is that it's all of that we've been looking at has been building up to this. So as we began back in, uh, you know, really back in chapter 1, but mainly as we looked at Roman chapter 3 in verse uh, 21, where it tells us, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no difference. And because Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God, and because we are now justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to this end of this section, and there are a series of rhetorical questions that's going to be asked. In fact, there are four of them that are specific. Two of them kind of overlap in some, somewhat of the same way, but with a, a little bit of a difference with them. But really, the overarching uh, question that's going to be asked and answered in this text is found here in verse 31. So as we begin looking there, notice what he says, what then shall we say to these things? So the question is, what are these things? Um, it could be thinking about all that he said in chapter 8, maybe the very preceding context about the suffering that Christians go through and how God in his, in his uh, providence and his plan is Redemption is, is using these sufferings for his purposes. But I, I think it goes all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 21, as Paul has been explaining very clearly about the nature of the gospel, the application of the gospel, what it means that Christ died for us, and how Christ has now justified us, um, and how we are now in a right relationship, not only because Christ died for us, but also one of the things that we need to remember about our salvation and about justification, about being made righteous, is it not just Christ died for us, but he also lived for us. And that's one of the things that's usually missing about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he actually lived for us. That the reason that I can be righteous is because he lived a righteous life for me. Right? And the reason that I can be righteous is because uh, in his life he lived righteously for me, but also in his death he paid the penalty for my sin that makes me righteous. Okay, so, so the question is, what shall we say about all these things? 
And so this is what Paul is going to be getting at here in this text, and he's going to make it clearly, or clear, about what he wants to say about all these things. Then he asks right off the back of that question in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is the main question that he asks. It's a rhetorical question, and it, there should be an answer to the question. It's expected answer. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And so the answer is, no one can be against us. Because if God is for us, no one can be against us. And then in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we just pray that as we come to you through the context of your word that you will speak to us and that you will be present in a very real and dynamic way. And Father, we just pray that we'll be receptive to your word and that we may, we may be able to truly understand what it means that God is for us, that you yourself, the God of all creation, is for us. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, I want us just for a moment to think about the idea of, of this question that's asked here in verse 31. It's, it's the primary question that drives this whole section that Paul asks. Now, I, I think it's important also that in the way that Paul does this is he doesn't just make a statement that he, he frames it in a way of a question. It's a rhetorical question. It's not a, a question that should be unknown. And the reason for that is, is that he wants us to really think about it. So if, if, if he just makes the statement that God is for us, he's not against us, there might be a tendency for us not to really think about the ramifications of that. What does that actually really mean? But the fact that he, he frames it in a question means he wants us to really think about this. Think about this incredible idea that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us. Now, we also have to think about it within the frame of the context about what, what Paul has been saying about us. So if we go back to Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 18, and reading all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20, we learn some hard truths for us to swallow about who we are, about us. The fact that we are sinners. It makes 
these glaring statements about the nature and the reality of our sins and the depth of our depravity is so much that even the very thoughts that we think in our mind is constantly wicked. That what comes out of our mouth is wicked. That with our hands and our feet, we are swift to shed blood. This is how he describes us. And of course, I think as he describes us in Romans chapter 5, in verses 6 through 11, where he gives four words that's a description of who we are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sinners, we are without strength, we are ungodly, and if that's not enough, we are enemies. Which means that we are haters of God. But because of Christ and because of the gospel, because God has graciously called us to himself and has saved us, he asked this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. So if there's one truth that I want you to leave here with this morning, especially as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to leave this place no matter what you brought in here. because I know that as we come into the context of our worship gathering that we have things that are going on in our life. I don't always know about it. We bring a lot of baggage in here. And sometimes when we're going through all these things in our life, we're asking our question, or we're asking the question to ourselves, is God really for me? If God is for me, why am I going through all these things? Now, I hope that last week we, 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 I gave you somewhat of an answer to that. Uh, there's, there's a mystery as to why there is suffering in the world, why God's people suffer. Why do we go through these things? But at least one overarching truth that we did learn is that all things work for the good of those who love God. Now, we may not be able to see that work right now in the present, but one of these days when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and brings the fullness of our redemption and our salvation, where the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive, where we will be glorified together, we will understand what it means to say all things work for good. So, but as we, as we live in the context of this world and we go through all these sufferings, we're wondering, is God against me? And here, Paul tells us here in this text, no, he's not. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, you know, when we're reading through the Bible sometimes, it's, I know that there's a tendency for us, we're just trying to, to get our reading in for the day. But as, as we come and we're confronted with chapter 31, I would just have to say that you just have to stop and drop your Bible and just think about the fact that God is for us and he's not against us. And to worship this great, and glorious God who is for us. Now, there is evidence that God is for us. How do we know that God is actually for us? It's not just subjective evidence. It's not just a warm feeling that we have in our, in our lives, in our hearts, but we actually have objective evidence, verifiable proof that God is for his people. And we find 
that he's for us because as verse 32 tells us, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So the evidence or the proof that God is for us is that God gave us everything when he gave us his son. But we just think about this and the way that Scripture tells us about the nature and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that we learn about Jesus is that he is truly God. And so for Paul to make this statement is to say nothing short than God gave us himself. God gave his everything in the fact that he gave us himself. If you think about how Colossians 1 speaks about the person of Jesus Christ, it describes him as the firstborn of creation. It tells us by him all things were created, and by him all things consist. And so when God gave us Christ, he gave us absolutely everything. And it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we have all things. And so he asks the question that we may ask concerning the future and gives the answer to them who is against us. Who shall lay anything to the charge against God's elect? Who is he that shall condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of God? And there is no other greater demonstration and testimony that God is for me as a believer and that God is for you as a believer than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he truly gave of himself all things to us. So if you doubt the reality that God is for you, we need to embrace the truth of what the Bible tells us that God has done for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the central focus or the central part of everything in the Bible. Everything is leading up to the reality of who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus Christ has done, and leading through that. It's one of my biggest frustrations that whenever I hear people talk, mainly, especially sermons, and there is no Christ in their sermons, I am so frustrated by that because Jesus Christ is everything. Nothing makes sense apart from the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no help. There is nothing for us apart from Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. And so the cross and, and what Christ has done through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, where he now sits at the right hand of, of God, it is the preeminence of all things. And it is the preeminent proof for us this morning that God is for us. That even in the context of our sins, that there is forgiveness that awaits for us because of Jesus. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the greatest proof that we have to know that God is not against us, but that he is for us, is through his son, Jesus Christ. So the idea of the fact that he did not spare his own son, which remind, and, and he goes further and says that he delivered him up for us all. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ was not taken from him. God did not spare him. God delivered him. God gave him up for us. 
And then he gives us the reason, or gives us maybe fuller evidence, that if God did not deliver him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, I think we've already talked just a little bit about what it means that God gives us all things. As we look back in chapter 8 and verse 17, we're described as children. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So this is the idea here that he will freely give us all things. And he freely gives us all things because we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us, or we share in it, if you will. And what is it that belongs to Christ? Everything. There's not one square inch of this universe that the Lord Jesus Christ has not declared mine. It belongs to him. And yet we share in this inheritance together with him. So this is the, this is the main uh, thesis, if you will, of this section. God is not against us. And we know that he's not against us because he has given us his son. He has given us the Lord Jesus Christ. And I also wonder if this may be one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, in verse 32, when he says he gave us his own son. He could have said he gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says he gave us his own son. And that's a reminder to us that as he gave us his son, he gave us himself. Because the the idea of son is communicating the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God. So it speaks to the fullness of all that God has given us. So, and then this takes us forward from verse 32. So now that we know that God is for us and that he's not against us, since God is for us, no one can ever bring a charge against us, or condemn us. Since God is for us, no one can ever bring a charge against us or condemn us. So look in verse 33 with me. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is he who condemns. It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So since God is for us, since the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, since God did not spare his own son, that means that there is never going to be a charge or a condemnation that can stick to us. Now, let's be, real, let's be honest here. That the charges that are lobbied our way, the condemnations that are lobbied our way, that they are deserving. We deserve to be charged. We deserve a guilty sentence. We deserve condemnation. But because God is for us, and because his son Jesus Christ died for us, because he lived for us, because he took the penalty of our sins on himself, there is now no one that can bring a charge against us. There is now no one that can condemn us because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, I want to illustrate it in this way, and I want to take you back to a great scene in the writings of the minor prophet Zechariah. It's often an overlooked book 
is uh, it's, it's a hard book to read, hard to interpret. But um, in Zechariah chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5, there was a high priest in that day whose name was Joshua. And he is, sta- he is seen standing in the temple, no doubt preparing to present the people's sacrifices. And in that text, we are told that Satan is there accusing him. And there's a description of Joshua. Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes, symbolizing his sin. And the devil is arguing that Joshua is unfit for his office because he is a sinner. Now, and the picture actually takes us back to the priestly garment that the high priest was supposed to wear when he made intercession on behalf of the people. He was to go through this very stringent and strict ritual washing to put on an inner garment, then to put on an outer garment. He was to be cleaned. He was to be looked, uh, he was to have this ritual bathing, so to speak. But here we have this picture that stands before us, and Joshua is in filthy attire. He is not fit. To be a priest. And there Satan stands and he points his finger at him and says, look at him. He's filthy. He's dressed. He's disgusting. He is not fit to be a priest. And then in that text we're told that the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan. And whenever you see the expression, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, that means that the Lord himself, his manifest personal presence, God himself is coming down. And he rebukes Satan. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebukes you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is not a brand plucked from the fire? And then we are told in that same text how Joshua's filthy clothes are removed and he is now clothed with rich garment, a clean turban, symbols of his justification through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who could accuse him now? No one. No one at all, because it was now God who had dressed him in the clean garments that made him fit to be a priest and to stand as an intercessor between God and his people. And that's a glorious image. That's a wonderful image that we need to think about as it relates to our own life, as it relates to the sin that stains us and dirties us. We are unfit. We cannot. We should not. We must not stand in God's presence as we are. But by the grace of God, he calls us to himself. And through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And because of that, no charge can stick now. And the reason that there's no charge that can be levied against us is because the Lord Jesus Christ has taken those charges on himself. He has taken that condemnation on himself, and he has given us a completely clean slate. So apart from the work of God in Christ, there would be many to condemn us. The devil, of course, and others, even our own heart, condemns us. And there continue to be people who level charges against the Christians, against Christians and against believers. And the people of this world, the court systems, may give the believer a guilty sentence, but the judge of the living and the dead, the one who is judge over all things, says not guilty. Not guilty. And even if a charge was made, 
who will condemn us? Who has the authority to do this? Because we're told here in the text that it is none other than God who justifies. It is God who declares us righteous. As the ultimate judge of all things, it is God himself who says, you are righteous. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are righteous and there are no charges against you. You know, one who makes, he is the one who makes condemnation impossible. What is it that we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So because we are in Christ Jesus, this is how God sees us. This is how God judges us. He doesn't judge us outside of Christ Jesus. He judges us inside of Christ Jesus. So who can charge the Lord Jesus? No one. Who can condemn the Lord Jesus? No one. So since we are in Christ Jesus, that means no one can charge us. No one can condemn us. Now, it's interesting, too. I want you to think about this idea of being charged and being condemned, especially as it relates to the perspective of the world, because that's exactly what the world did to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. They put him on the cross because they believed that he was guilty. They called him a blasphemer. They called him an an instigator, so to speak, that he was trying to rile up. Uh, riots, if you will, to overturn the Roman government. So the court system of that day said you are guilty. But when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens, that was a declaration that everything that he did was right and it was good. And that's why, the, that's why God himself said two different times in the gospel, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so... As we are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us. Now, I just want you to notice there are four, in verse 34, there are four statements that are made about why it is that no one can charge, no one can condemn. Why? In verse 34, it is Christ who died. Why did he die? For our charges and for our condemnation. Not only is it that Christ who died, but he was also risen What was he risen for? He was risen for our justification. He was risen to show that he has overcome the world. That the the, the condemnation and that the sin that we had because of his cross, because of his resurrection, he has overcome that. He is victorious over that. He is even at the right hand of God, which is a position of honor and a position of authority. And he also makes intercession for us, which speaks about this unique personal relationship that we have with the one and the only one who has the right to condemn and to bring charges against us. But he doesn't bring charges against us, does he? Instead, he makes intercession, which means he helps us. He helps us. And so God is for us. So since God is for us, no one can ever bring a charge against us or condemn us. The last thing that we see in this text, since God is for us, Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can separate us from his love. So notice what he says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God. And then he lists all these things that have the potential to separate us from the love of God that maybe in our own mind, in our own thinking, as we think about the things that we go through in our lives, that we think this is something that's going to do me in as it relates to my relationship with God. And he makes it very clear that nothing can separate us from the love 
of God. And since none can accuse and none can condemn God's people, Paul insists that nothing, not even suffering, can separate believers from Christ's love. In fact, he itemizes seven afflictions that some may go through. And as they go through them, they wonder, has God abandoned them? And these seven are listed here in this text. If you look in verse uh, 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. This is pretty much an exhaustive list of, of the kinds of suffering that God's people has gone through for the sake of being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. These were things that these believers actually experienced and that was real in their life. You can imagine that if you went through this kind of intense suffering, that she would begin to wonder, has God abandoned me? And so the answer to that question is no, God has not abandoned you. In fact, the opposite is true. Not only has God not abandoned you, but God in these events, in all reality, is showing his love for you. In fact, that's one of the things that we actually, we actually find here as we looked at last week, that you know, all things work for the, get, for the good to those who love God. Who were called according to his purpose. But we actually find in other texts, for instance in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, that the very evidence that we know that God loves us, that God is for us, that we are children of God, is that sometimes we go through these things. The writer of Hebrews talks about this being like chastisement or, or discipline. You only discipline your children. And you discipline your children because you love your children. And so instead of seeing the difficulties and the sufferings and the tribulations and all these things that are listed here in the text as evidence that maybe God has abandoned us, we need to reverse our thinking and see that these may be evidence of God showing me that he loves me and that I belong to him and I am a child of his. In fact, he actually gives in verse 36, this is not something that is unusual, it's not something that is new. He quotes from the, uh, the book of Psalms, and you know, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So if you'll notice here, the emphasis on this text is that why are they being, why are they going through this suffering? For your sake. Because we faithfully follow you, because we faithfully love you, because of you we are going through this. Like Jesus gave his disciples a warning, and it's a warning that's still true for us today. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. Why? Because they hated him first. The world hates the Lord Jesus Christ. The world hates God. And so we shouldn't be thinking that life is just going to be, uh, you know, uh, just a steady stroll of uh, of just great goodness that everywhere we go through because there's adversity because the reality of it is is that we are going against the stream the world is saying go this way and we're going the opposite way in fact adrian rogers one of my well probably my most favorite preacher he actually made this statement one time he said that if everything's going in the right direction for you that may mean you and the devil are going in the same way and if you'll turn around, you're going to run into a collusion. And so that's, that's the reality of life, and that's what we actually see in Romans chapter 8, that this life is subjected to the futility of sin. 
And because we are now in the Lord Jesus Christ, our, we are redeemed, we are being redeemed. And, and the, the very essence that's ingrained in this world is sin. And we shouldn't be surprised when we face sufferings and tribulations and that for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, these things are happening. For instance, as I mentioned this morning about our friend Abraham in India, the reason that he doesn't have any money in his bank account is for the sake of Christ. If he was a Hindu or a Muslim in India, he wouldn't be having this problem. But now the government has confiscated $40,000 out of his account, which is a tremendous amount of money in India. They don't have anything now. Why? For the sake of Christ. But this is not evidence that God doesn't love Abraham. It's evidence that he does and that he loves those people there. And so nothing can separate us from Christ. Now, if you'll notice there, so, so we shouldn't be looking at these, these issues that we go through, these sufferings, these struggles, as though that they're evidence that God has abandoned. In fact, 37 says, yet all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And why are we conquerors? Because God is for us. He's not against us. God is for us. And then if you'll notice in verse 38 that he is, uh, using it uh, in a uh, literary way called merrisms. He's taken opposite realities, neither, uh, neither height nor depth. None of, nothing. So notice, notice how he uses this. He says, for I am persuaded, he is confident, he knows this as a reality, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor, pa- nor, uh, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And notice here, where is the sphere of this love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Where is it? In Christ Jesus. This is the hope that Paul gives to these believers, and it's the hope that he gives to us today. God is for us. And since God is for us, no one can condemn us, no one can charge us. And since God is for us, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray together.